Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with the latest edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. Today's conversations with Gene Sperling former chief White House economic advisor to both Presidents Clinton and Obama on the unemployment figures, the impact on the business of travel and tourism, and what it means when you start traveling again. Some serious numbers and a serious impact. Then a look at if and how the hotel industry will recover. My chat with Dean Kate Walsh at the Cornell University School of Hotel Administration. And batting third, but never last, my talk with Costas Christ editor-at-large for National Geographic, and the current conservation crisis, what you need to know and do. First, Gene Sperling. You've seen the unemployment figures come out again this week. Not a pretty picture. And if you do the numbers, travel-related unemployment in the travel sector, it's over 51%. And how ironic that it's happening on a weekend that traditionally you know, kicks off the summer travel period. Uh, more than half of the 15, almost 16 million travel-related jobs in the U.S. have disappeared since the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and by the way, that 51% unemployment rate in the travel sector is more than twice the 25% rate the country as a whole is experiencing during the Great Depression. So we're talking, you know, every segment, hotels, airlines, cruise ships, restaurants, uh, the guy who drives the Uber, the person who runs the Airbnb, it's everybody. And when you think about our consumer travel spending, uh, it's down over two-thirds of last year's level. And as I said in the open, you know, last year the AAA was estimating 43 million Americans would be traveling over the three-day weekend. This year, for the first time in, in my memory, they didn't even hazard a guess. They couldn't. It's so low. Uh, but 
it's going to get worse because if you take a look at the airlines, I'm going to give you a statistic. And uh, for those of you who are regular listeners to the show, uh, take a chance and look at uh, CBS Sunday Morning tomorrow for my interview with uh, Oscar Munoz, the uh, executive chairman of United, and Chris Nassetta, the chairman of Hilton. But the numbers here are staggering. On any given day, including today, United Airlines will fly about 10,000 passengers. United Airlines has over 12,000 pilots. That means on any given day, they're flying fewer passengers than they have pilots. This is absurd. And uh, when, the, uh, when the federal bailout money, or at least the requirements of the federal bailout money run out, uh, you're going to see Delta Airlines with a surplus of 7,000 more pilots than they need, and United Airlines with at least five or 6,000 more pilots than they need, and those unemployment numbers go up. So there are some people who think that we're not really in the midst of a recession when it comes to travel. We're in, the in, we're in a depression. And joining me now, somebody who knows a lot about this. He was the, uh, the director of the National Economic Council under both Presidents Clinton and Obama, and a, a former flying partner of mine, if he chooses to uh, admit it, Gene Sperling. How are you, Gene? Thanks for having me on. I know it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult time for so many, many, many workers and people in the travel industry. You know, you talk about this in your book. Uh, it, leads all, it all leads into it. Gene's got a new book out called Economic Dignity. And the, the, the actual choice of that word dignity was, was, I think, perfect to explain what we're going through now, isn't it? You know, it really is. Um, you know, one thing, of course, I didn't know we would be going through this right now. Uh, but uh, I think the themes of the book have never been more resonant. But, you know, I, I talk in the book about Martin Luther King's famous speech on March 18, 1968, at the Memphis Workers Sanitation uh, Strike. And he says, that's the famous speech where he says, all labor has dignity. But the line he says is, someday our nation will realize that the sanitation worker is as essential as the physician to our well-being. Um, this feels like that moment. This feels like that moment where people are now realizing that, you know, the, the person who helped on your travel to, you know, vis- you know, make sure you could spend that last day with a loved one or, or, you know, have the joys of family or be for a wedding or right now deliver food, farm workers, the nursing aid is putting their life on the line. They really are, uh, you know, so essential. We feel it. And it is forcing people to confront the dissonance that so many of the workers we value and rely on and have our whole lives, we don't treat with a degree of economic dignity. We, uh, you know, Martin Luther King said also in that same speech, he said, what good is it to win the right to sit at an integrated lunch counter? You don't have enough money to buy your family a meal. And so there's a lot of applause for the people who are still working. They're called heroes and they're right. But it will start to fall empty if we don't, one, reward those people with the wages and sick leave and health care they need to care for themselves and their family. And secondly, if we don't take care of the people who have lost jobs at no fault of their own, other than they just happen to be alive and working during a once in a hundred and two year pandemic. And we do not have to let so much devastation happen. And Peter, I'm sure we'll talk about it. There may be long-term changes, but there is a certain amount of small business, you know, travel jobs, hospitality jobs, et cetera. You know, small businesses who 
you know, families saved up, invested, took chances, and they're going to go out forever, not because they had to, but because we didn't figure out a response to get to those who really needed it to keep the lights on or to keep their employers on, or we were willing to do it for six, eight weeks instead of realizing in places like travel that this is going to go on for a while. And, and, and you know, there are, we don't need to let this kind of destruction happen. So we've done some things right, a few, you know, we've done a few things right in the plans we've had so far, uh, but we've done a lot wrong and we were incredibly slow in getting started. The president was, and, and I, I fear that is going to make, put us in a worse situation, not just in terms of deaths, but in job loss than many of our, our fellow countries who had a faster start and had maybe a broader, swifter response to protect their, their businesses, their small businesses and, and their workers. You know, I'm looking at some of these numbers, and they're just staggering to me that the travel-related job losses represented 38% of all job losses through April. That's, that's a lot of people. But here's the number that should really put things in perspective. In the year following 9-11, travel spending declined $57 billion, and that, resen- that represented $133 billion in economic loss. Travel spending this time around is expected to decline. Fasten your seatbelts. $519 billion, representing $1.2 trillion in economic loss. That's nine times the losses of September 11th. Can we sustain that? It's extremely painful. And actually, you know, part of our lesson had been that after a period of time, even after you'd had a terrorist attack, et cetera, people came back. Um, people came back to visiting New York. They they travel. Uh, and so you do have a uh, you do have an eventual rec- the the hits not as harm is not as hard and the recovery you know usually does take place within a year year and a half things do start to return more to normal I mean right now the problem is Peter we're, you know we're still in the middle of this story we, you know we don't we we're not able to analyze looking back and we don't know to use the baseball analogy are we in the you know sixth inning or are we in the second or third inning. And that makes a big difference. But I do think that that we have the capacity. We're the United States. Uh, you know, we shouldn't be looking and saying, "Wow, Denmark's doing a lovely job." You know, why why aren't we? And part of I think what you have to do is, uh, you know, when you know the boldest comments that come from our central bankers are when they say, "Whatever, whatever's necessary." And I think that's what you have to do at the uh, at the government level, the fiscal level which is you have to say whatever's necessary. And you have to remember, all of these workers we're talking about, they've done nothing wrong. They, they wanted to come to work. Uh, many of them built up businesses with their families over generations. So uh, we need to say, here's the support we're going to give. And we're going to do it not by going back to Congress every month and a half, but saying, here's the support for businesses with oversight, ensuring they're using it for their workers to keep their lights on. Here's the support for those who are unemployed. It should try to really replace their paycheck. Here's the report, what what states and local governments are going to need to prevent additional firing of of millions of of workers. And we'll do it as long until we get the unemployment rate well under 10%. When it's not necessary, it'll go away. But until then, we should be keeping people afloat 
And anybody who says, well, it's going to be bad for the deficit. Well, let me tell you, if you're worried about fiscal issues, what you should be worried about is what you said, Peter, a long-term job depression. Gene Sperling, thanks for, uh, for continuing our conversation. You know, when we talk about uh, the problem, everybody is telling me, and you can see it, you know, 30% of the restaurants that are closed now won't come back. 30% of the jobs in the travel sector across the board won't come back. Uh, and then there's the other issue that I, that I don't think anybody's talking about, so I want to ask you about it. You know, we always talk about spending power or consumer spending power. Uh, we're seeing massive credit card payment defaults. Uh, that's how we pay for travel. You know, We're seeing uh, the banks that are able to withstand that for maybe two or three months. But then they're banks, right, Gene? They're going to want to limit their exposure, minimize their risk, and they're either going to lower credit limits or freeze cards so that when we finally get to the point of getting out of this, we won't have anything to buy because we won't have the tool to do it, otherwise known as our our credit card. So travel may really not come back for a while. Well, I mean, this. I mean, it's very important for us to understand what what we can't fix uh, or couldn't have prevented, and what we could have prevented, and what we can still fix. You couldn't prevent that there was a COVID nineteen. Uh, that was nobody's responsibility or fault. And I think people in the travel industry may have to deal with certain long-term changes. It may be that after a year of, of Zoom, uh, there's going to be less business travel and that it may affect profit margins, that may affect jobs. On the other hand, I think when we have a uh, treatment, when we have the proper testing, when we get an ultimate vaccine, I think people will, of course, return to still wanting to have vacations and go out to dinner with friends. Those are basic human uh, uh, needs that I don't think are going to ultimately change. So some people are going to have to deal with long-term permanent changes. But there's a lot of places where when you say they're never coming back, it's not because there's been a trend change. It's because we just didn't help out. You know, the PPP, the small business program, didn't help out the people who really needed it to keep the light uh, on and the jobs of uh, uh, people on their payroll. That's something we could have done something about. And right now, we did have an unemployment check that's been very generous. Instead of just replacing 40% of your wages, it tries to, pr to protect 100% as we go through this jobs depression. Well, for people, you know, it's not just for the people who've lost their job in the travel industry. If other people are basically whole, they can pay their bills. They're not defaulting on their credit card. They're not worrying about getting uh, 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 put out of their home. Then when we do get better, when, when we reopen and keep reopening and hopefully do so in a way that doesn't backfire or cause a second wave, then yes, those families might have a bit of pent-up demand to, to do a little travel or to, to vacation. But if they come out of it and they're in such poor shape because we failed to provide them the unemployment relief or help their employer keep them on the payroll, then it's not just hurting those workers. As you say, it is hurting the consumers who may have a pent-up demand to go visit the relatives, take a vacation, go to a restaurant, but are now hurting so bad uh, that they don't. And then that slows the recovery. But that part is under our control. Bold, uh, response from our government in helping small businesses who can stay afloat, in helping unemployment relief, making sure it doesn't expire, 
at the end of July, continuing to make sure that gig workers and other people not traditionally covered are covered. It's humane. It's the right thing to do for economic dignity. But it's also, as you said, the right thing to do to make sure that demand has a chance to come back when we do get a health care solution. We're talking to Gene Sperling, the author of Economic Dignity. And before we run out of time, uh, you and I were at a uh, international travel symposium in the Gulf a couple of years ago. And I secured access to a $26 million real-time flight simulator. And uh, you were a pilot, weren't you? Okay, so if people are wondering, why is Peter bringing this up? It's not because <laughs> I landed the plane wonderfully and he didn't. You might guess it was the opposite. Peter landed it uh, gracefully. And uh, on the simulator, when I did it, they were putting foam out on the runway and <laughs> saying, thank God that guy's not an actual pilot. Um <laughs> But uh, look, uh, uh, made clear to me, I, I probably am better doing what I'm doing. But um, but I but, you know, I really do want to just you know close by saying that I, I, it's incredibly important in economics and people should not feel intimidated that somehow economics is supposed to, that our end goal is supposed to be a GDP or a stock market value or a metric. The end goal of economic policy should be lifting us up. And the vision, the vision of this book is that that North Star, that goal should be economic dignity. And it's not complicated. It's number one, can you care for your family and be there for them in life's most precious moments? Number two, can you pursue uh, purpose, potential, and meaning? And if you lose your job like many have, do you have a real second chance to come back? And three, when you're working, do you do so with respect or are you, do you have to tolerate yeah. abuse and domination and humiliation? My thanks to Gene Sperling, and once again, his book, Economic Dignity, is a great and timely read. Up next, my chat with Cornell University School of Hotel Management Dean, Kate Walsh. When we talked earlier in the show about the latest labor and unemployment figures, which are just keeping getting worse all the time, when you begin to break those down, what you discover quite quickly is how many of them come from the travel-related industries, uh, the service industry that happens to be the largest in the world. And so many of those jobs that have been lost for the time being are in the hotel sector. So who better to talk about what's going on in the brave new world of hotels right now than Dean Kate Walsh from the, uh, the School of Hotel Administration at the Hotel School of all hotel schools in the United States, Cornell. Dean, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's talk about some of the bad news out there, uh, because what you do at the, at the hotel school is really you're teaching and training people to take the jobs and to start managing and to start, you know, basically running hotels from the ground up. And it's got to be a little bleak right now, considering how many jobs have been lost. Yeah, well, I like your word temporary because um, we're very much hoping um, that this is something that we will restart from and grow from and build back up. Um, I like to say in our school, we're the number one school for hospitality in even the world. And um, what we pride ourselves on doing is preparing tomorrow's industry leaders. But um, we like to say it's the business of hospitality, not necessarily the hospitality business. And why that matters is we're training tomorrow's leaders in all sectors of services, how to run hotels. There are restaurants, airlines, real estate, uh, distribution, OTAs. Um, so we, we pay really close attention to what's happening in the industry right now. And, and I how will we can say help. that. And I will say that every time I go to a hotel and I'm talking to their senior management, 
there's about an 80% chance that one of them went to Cornell. Yeah, it's, you know, we really have had, we have about a hundred, almost a hundred year history. So um, in that long history, we have a legacy of really putting, putting the decision makers and leaders out there. Uh, well, we part, of, to do part of what you do, Dean, is you do a lot of research as well. What is mm-hmm. your information telling you now about how we move forward? Well, you know, our industry is made up of really smart, caring, hardworking people. And what we have seen, and we're in constant conversation with all of the leaders of the brands, the operators, um, and the owners. And we just saw a very smart and hardworking pivot to conveying trust to the traveler. And that's around safety and sanitation and security. So every one of those hotel companies have already mapped out brands or plans, excuse me, um, for making sure guests have a great experience and a safe one. And so right now they are going to be planning or they are planning on how to bring back the staff, how to retrain them, um, how to make sure there is hospital grade sanitation going on. And that's super important to conveying um, trust to all of our guests that it's safe to travel again. You know, if you take a look at the big brands and who they partnered with now, you have Hilton partnering with Lysol and uh, and uh, the Mayo Clinic. You have IHG mm-hmm. with the Cleveland Clinic. You have other hotels with Johns Hopkins. You basically put the word hospital back in hospitality. Yeah, we, we have. And, um, and that's super, or very important right now. The issue or the in- interesting thing that we'll just have to see how it plays out is we don't want the hospitality or the hotel experience to feel clinical. You don't want to be reminded of this all the time. Yet at the same time, those are important signals of safety. So we have to really uh, be very cognizant of how we convey that heartfelt service that's just we're all so proud of and so personalized while physically distancing. I won't even say socially distancing, but just being <laughs> physically apart. Well, yeah. you know, it's it's interesting. Short of renaming all the hotels the Hazmat Inn, uh, I would think <laughs> that moving forward, at least initially, it will be a little bit more on that scale of the hazmat in simply because people are going to be focused on the process of how that room got prepared for them before they ever got there. Yeah, I mean, we're going to be paying attention to it. Do you remember the days when you would go, when you'd stay at a motor inn and there would be plastic around the glasses and all uh-huh. of those things, or even paper to convey sanitation? But we're also hearing from our, our, our industry partners who have opened back up that some of their guests want housekeeping in their room every day. They want to be cared for. They want the services. And so what's really going to be challenging is to dictate your your the service that you provide based on guest different preferences and thresholds around safety in terms of sanitation. I just want to know if they're going to bring back magic fingers. <laughs> for <laughs> those of my listeners treatment. who are too young to remember <laughs> that, there you mentioned the motor hotels. There was a time when you check in to a, to a motel and there was a little box on the corner by the nightstand that took quarters, and when you lay in the bed, the bed would vibrate. <laughs> oh, goodness. All right. You are dating yourself, but I, I know. remember hearing that. <laughs> I know. It's absolutely yeah, true. Mean, it is. It is. It is. Look, it's it's super challenging. It it upended us. It is it was it's unprecedented. Um, but we are looking for the opportunities in it, and there are opportunities, especially around uh, technology and innovations that can make the experience um, feel safe and be a new and different way of doing something.
My thanks to Dean Walsh. So how will the environment deal with COVID-19, the unintended consequences, both positive and some downright scary ones as well? The man who follows this closely from National Geographic, Costas Christ. Good friend of mine, editor-at-large for National Geographic Traveler. What a perfect time to talk to my guest, because as all these destinations are now starting to open, both in this country and abroad, the question then becomes, how much damage has been done to the environment prior to the pandemic? How much of that has been restored and improved since the pandemic? And of course, as we begin to get out there and travel, what can we as responsible travelers do to make sure we don't regress? Joining me, the editor-at-large of National Geographic, Costas Chris. Hey, Costas. Hi, Peter. How are you? And hello to all your listeners. Yeah, so uh, you're up in one of my favorite locations. I'm sure you're sheltering in place in Maine. I, I am indeed, Peter. I'm on the coast of Maine, which is my home base. So let's talk. I mean, are, are there more blueberries coming back? <laughs> well, uh, this uh, you know me well, and yes, I'm based here on a blueberry farm because that's uh, one of my other passions. And the blueberries have not flowered yet, but they'll be flowering within a week, and that's a nice thing, and we're looking forward to it. So let's talk about a couple of things. Uh as people start to go back to beaches, whether it's in Southern California or on the East Coast, uh, and we'll talk about Europe in a second, uh, has the water condition changed? Has the water quality changed? Well, you know, Peter, it's it's an interesting question for a couple of reasons. Uh, on one level, we've been hearing reports during the pandemic of, for example, you know, uh, blue skies reappearing over formerly smog cities like Delhi and, and Beijing. The canals of Venice, you know, are running, you know, uh, clear again. Um, there was, you know, we're hearing reports. You've had, you've heard your own reports about uh, Paris and, you know, the, the Seine, you know, also running clear. So we, we've been hearing these stories of nature is kind of reclaiming. Nature's being reborn. We're seeing the world improve. But there's another story that isn't being told enough, and it's even more important. And that is the reality with the stop and travel of people, meaning tourists not going to Africa on safaris and to other wildlife areas around the world, and particularly on the African continent, we're seeing a terrible impact on conservation. In other words, this has caused a crisis in conservation. So it just underscores, Peter, the importance of the industry in supporting things like improving people's livelihoods and poverty alleviation and protecting wildlife and habitat. You know, we saw the original reports about the water in Venice being so clear you could see to the bottom. Uh, our good friend Elaine Chilina from the New York Times reported in from Paris she could see to the bottom of the Seine. I never saw that. Uh, there were some reports that turned out to be false, that there were dolphins in the lagoons in Venice. That turned out to be a photograph from Sardinia. However, just two days ago, somebody sent me video, uh, who I know, from the Bosphorus in Turkey, there were dolphins in the Bosphorus. Well, there's no question. I mean, we've stopped a massive level of, you know, factories were shut down. Massive amounts of manufacturing were shut down. You know, you, you know me, Peter, and I'm an environmentalist and a conservationist. 
So on the one level, nature's getting a reprieve, a break, and that provides us with an opportunity to rethink how we operate on this planet. And the other thing that we need to rethink is, you know, the understanding now, uh, clearly, of the importance of travel when it comes to supporting conservation and protecting some of the last great wild areas on our planet, from the Serengeti, you know, all the way down to the Great Barrier Reef. Yeah, you're right. And the thing is, as these locations are starting to open up, from uh, the, Greece is starting to open up, Iceland's starting to open up, parts of France and Germany, uh, and they're talking about opening it up in phases, so they're going to try to limit the numbers. But you can't just limit numbers. You have to basically redefine behavior, don't you? Yes, and that's what I meant while we have an opportunity to reset and rethink. So there's lots of things that are happening here, but here's kind of the, the key takeaways. We need to understand that our individual health and well-being is directly connected to the planet's health and well-being. So we cannot continue to operate you know, on the basis of thinking that you can just throw whatever you want in the ocean and you can spew whatever you want in the atmosphere and somehow it goes away. It doesn't. It comes back to us and it harms us. We are nature. We are part of nature. You know, with tourism on hold, you take a look at some key target areas in Africa uh, throughout the entire continent, and what you're finding, and by the way, this is also happening in United States national parks. The wildlife has been busy uh, procreating, I might add. And in Africa, it's a little bit more of a problem because with no tourism, uh, the rangers aren't really out there patrolling. And if the rangers aren't out there patrolling, the poachers are. Have you heard a lot of those reports, Costas? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's no question. We've seen an a increase in poaching uh, ap- uh, happening across Africa. You know, tourists are eyes and ears. And where tourists are absent, poachers fill the void. So on the one hand, the planet's having a reprieve while manufacturing and factories are shut down. But on the other hand, the lack of tourism in Africa is having a devastating conservation crisis. So what I was going to say is I think there's three key things here, Peter, three takeaways for all of your listeners to keep in mind. We need to recognize that our individual health and the planet's health are directly tied together. We cannot continue to keep polluting the atmosphere and our waters and the land. Two, to recognize that tourism and conservation are directly linked. And three, as an individual, all of us can make a choice to travel with companies that uphold these, those two things, personal health and well-being and planetary health and well-being. We need them both. Well, when we talk about this, you know, it's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to, to basically be aware of it and then to actually act it. Uh, you know, for example, we talked about the water quality in Venice. If they bring back people in stages and in the world of social distancing, I'm sure that's going to have to happen then maybe you can actually have some daylight on the bridge of size uh, as opposed to the bridge of thighs. Uh, Maybe they won't have to put turnstiles in St. Mark's Square and people can actually stroll it without bumping into, you know, millions of people as opposed to millions of pigeons. Uh, And you take this to Greece. Greece's solution, what what were we talking about three months ago, Costas? Over-tourism. 
right? That was the big, that was the buzzword. And a country like Greece, which is now about to reopen, what were they talking about? Limiting, not limiting the number of people, but changing their seasons, extending them, offering great deals in October, November, December, February, March, the low season to sort of balance out the hordes of people coming. But is that really going to work? Oh, I think it's a great idea. I think Greece has actually been quite successful in handling the pandemic itself in terms of public health aspects. And I think they are on the right track now on tourism. And it's good news that Greece also at the national level has just made an announcement to develop a national sustainable tourism plan, which includes some of the things you just mentioned. So those are the kind of things we want to support as travelers because it benefits us as travelers. It benefits the planet, and it also benefits the places we visit. Now, it's one thing to talk about some of the European countries that might be open, but of course, if you can't fly there, it's really open to people in the European Union until the airlift comes back, and some of those restrictions are removed. To be fair, many countries there still have a 14-day quarantine upon arrival, assuming they want to let you in, and that quarantine means you're going to be staying in that hotel and not leaving, so we're not all going to rush back there right away. But in the U.S., what are we going to see? Huge increase well, in road trips. Well, I think trips. in the United States, we're going to see most people getting in a vehicle and driving yeah. within 100 miles as their first trip as things begin to open up. And with time, I think we're going to see people taking short-haul flights. The, most of the, U, the U.S. population will be looking towards the Caribbean. They'll be looking towards Central and South America and Mexico. I think these are the places that are going to start. Having said that, though, Peter, uh, there's already movement afoot where people are beginning to plan long-distance trips towards the end of the year, January, December, and January, only they're doing it a little differently. They're saying, we're getting together a group of close friends and family, and we want to take the entire safari lodge or the entire eco-lodge, and we want it just for our group, and that's a way that they know who they're going to be with. So there's a lot of interesting things going on. There is. And, and, of course, this goes right back to behaviors again. And that is, you know, if, if there's going to be a, a family of six crowding into, a, you know, to an RV to rediscover America on the two lane highways, you and I both know their first stop is going to be a national park, followed maybe by a state park. Uh, but then again, when they get there, can it really go back to the old days at Yosemite where people are in line after line after line to see, you know, to see El Capitan? No. No, it's not. And I don't think people are going to want that. I don't think people are going to be looking for where can I, certainly not the majority of people are going to be looking for where can I stand in a big crowd. I think people are going to welcome those places that are taking into consideration how to create a more quality experience without crowds that's healthier for the individual, safer for the individual, and better for the environment. So not that this is designed to be this way, if you're operating a smaller hotel, you might be the most popular guy on the block as opposed to a big box 900-room hotel. It's, it's funny how the world works, Peter, but you're absolutely right. So, for example, the cruise industry, we've heard a lot of talk about the cruise industry. Well, the big cruise industry is going to they're, – they're, they're facing reality now. They're facing a reality that I don't think they've – faced very well in the past when it comes to sustainable practices, environmentally friendly practices, and so on. But my point is this. The small cruise lines, 
And by that, I mean the cruise lines that take 60 passengers or 100 passengers or less than 200 passengers are doing things differently. So, um, and that meaning putting people in alternative rooms so that they're not all booked one next to each other. But people are going to gravitate to the smaller and the less crowded. And those companies and those destinations that are able to meet that are going to see success sooner. And by the way, speaking of cruise lines, we all know that there's a you know 90-day do-not-sail order from the Centers for Disease Control on all U.S. cruises, and that expires at the end of June. However, if you've heard stories about all the other cruise lines taking reservations for August 1st, don't kid yourself. There is every reason to expect that the CDC is going to extend that uh, do-not-sail order at least another 90 days. And the real salvation for the cruise lines is not going to be this year. It's going to be next year when they have a comprehensive plan in place that satisfies the CDC on you know, how do you deal with large social gatherings in a confined space, whether it's the swimming pool, the shore excursions, the tour buses, the theaters, the dining rooms, the dreaded buffet, you name it, all the things that we've come to expect on a cruise ship. And so for this year, it's basically you know a write-off for them. They have enough cash in the bank to, uh, to stay solvent till next year. But what they're depending on right now is a strong uh, number of future bookings from their loyal repeat passengers. I think the reality here, you know, certainly when it comes to uh, the cruise line industry, the mega ships, as far as I'm concerned, are a thing of the past. And not just because of coronavirus, but also with the whole sustainability side. But I think the important thing for listeners to keep in mind is that when you travel and express your preference, I don't want crowds. I don't want mass tourism. I want a place that's going to be inspiring. I want nature. I want health. I want well-being with my friends and family. I want small is beautiful. Then the travel industry is going to give you that. So what we say as travelers can also reset and change the future of travel in a much better way. Yeah, beware the law of unintended consequences because just three months ago we were talking about you know, how big can these ships get? I mean, can they get any bigger? Uh, every cruise ship shipyard was operating at 100% capacity. They still are, by the way. Uh, there, are new, there are more ships coming online. And once again, you got to go back in there and redesign the floor plan, redesign everything to be able to give people, in the absence of widespread testing or a workable vaccine, an opportunity to actually have a cruise. Well, I'll tell you what, Peter, for me, I'm starting with a river, a small, sustainable river cruise adventure, and that's with the company called Uniworld. They're small, they're deeply committed to sustainability, and they are all over safety for their passengers. That's about as far as I'll go in the cruise world, and it sure won't be on a mega ship. <laughs> okay, I won't see you on the racetrack then. <laughs> <laughs> no, you won't. My thanks to Gene Sperling, Dean Kate Walsh, and Costas Christ for joining me today. And thank you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more interviews with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Ion Travel podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. You can also go to petergreenberg.com for the latest in travel news updates. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or 
on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.